Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Adam Ramden. Well, this evening, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to open it to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we begin our Bible study, our message uh, this evening. John chapter 1 and verse... Well, before we read, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask and pray that you would speak through me, that you would bless me with words to speak from on high. May you touch each and every one of our hearts, Lord, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, how many of you drive a Volkswagen? They used to have an advert. They still have it. You can find it on YouTube. Volkswagen Passat. And it has this man, woman, assume it's husband and wife, driving down the road in their car. And as they come to a, maybe a, a red light, there's a man there with a very posh car. Brand new, really nice. And he's stopped at the light. And he's leaning out the window and he's shouting on a megaphone. Because my daddy never hugged me. Because my daddy never hugged me. Because my daddy never hugged me. The car drives on. It then goes past a red convertible Mercedes. Inside the red convertible Mercedes, there is a very beautiful, blonde, 20-something-year-old woman. And she's leaning out, well, not the window, she's leaning out the car with her megaphone, and she's saying, because the more guys look at me, the more I love myself. The more guys look at me, the more I love myself. And the car drives on, and it comes past another car. This one is a yellow Corvette. And the man is leaning out his window shouting, to make up for all my insufficiencies. To make up for all my insufficiencies. And then the car drives on, the Volkswagen Passat, and the, the, the wife picks up a, uh, a megaphone that she had in the car. She winds down the window and she throws it out the car. And the car drives on and the closing tagline is, Volkswagen Passat, the lowest ego car there is. Very clever advert, and it did something to encapsulate the psychological process that goes on through our minds. Because much of what we do, some psychologists say 60 to 70% of what we do, we do based on what other people may think about us, or we do in order to please, or, or, or something to do with other people's views of us, as opposed to us being sure of ourselves. Because the more guys look at me, the more I love myself. Nice car. Because my daddy never hugged me. Because to make up for my insecurities, here's my nice fancy car. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1. Much of what we do in life is to make up for our insecurities. In John chapter 1, we're going to read a few texts from Jesus and to see, did Jesus have a similar problem to what sometimes we have down here on earth? In John chapter 1 and verse 29, what does uh, John the Baptist call Jesus? He says, the next day John saw Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the what? Sin of the world. 
Then you come down, come down into the chapter, and you come down there to verse 37. It says, And the disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned, and when he saw, and saw them following, and said unto them, What seek ye? I'm reading from the King James. If we were to translate that into modern English, if you're walking along and you turn around, we wouldn't say, What seek ye today, would we? What would we say? You're walking along, there's two people behind you, you turn around and you'd be like, What do you want? So Jesus is walking along, and these are the first words in red in the book of John. He's walking along, he turns around and he's like, What do you want? This is the Messiah. What do they say back? They say, Rabbi, where do you live? And Jesus says to them, What does he say? Come and see. So he's walking along, he's like, What do you guys want? And they say, Where do you live? And he says, Come and see. Come and see. You see, can someone spend time with you in your private life, in your home life, in your dorm life, wherever you be, and be so impressed by how you act, not at church in prayer meeting or at AYC or in those settings, but when they come at home, be so impressed by who you are that they say, ah, these are, who do these, these became his disciples. That they so impressed by who Jesus was at home, they said, ah, we want to follow this man. We want to follow this man. Jesus was very secure in who he was, and he could just be like, oh, oh come to my house, come to my house. Come spend, come spend some time with me and see who I am. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let's turn John 8 and verses 1 to 12. You have the story of the woman caught in adultery. We don't have time to read the whole thing. You know the story. She's caught in adultery. They throw it at Jesus' feet and they say, what should we do? And Jesus says, he that is without sin, I love the way he answers, let him cast the first stone. And so what does the woman, what happens to the woman? The men, they all go off, they're convicted by their conscience. And Bible says in verse 10, and she says, no man, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. So Jesus has just, you know, been involved in this amazing story that has encouraged countless women and men today. And over history, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. What's the next word he says, though, in verse 12? Then Jesus stands up and spoke unto them and says, I am the light of the... Do you see the confidence in Jesus? I'm not going to condemn thee, just don't go and sin. I am the light of the world. Chapter 9, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. Jesus is about to heal a man who's been blind from birth. And now, before he does the miracle in John chapter 9, he's about to perform the miracle... Verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night comes where no man can work. As long, verse 5, as I am in the world, I am the what? John chapter 1, come and see where I live. John chapter 8, I am the light. John 9, I am the I am, I am. I am. Jesus was very sure of who he was. How did Jesus know who he was? From where was Jesus able to say with confidence, I am? I am. How did Jesus get that confidence? Was it conceit, yes or no? Was it pride? If you heard the preacher and the preacher was saying, I am, I am, I am, you'd be like, hmm, not quite sure about this preacher. Jesus is standing saying, I am the light. I am the light. It wasn't pride. It wasn't conceit. Jesus was very secure. He was very confident as to who he was based on the word of God. 
Jesus got his identity, not from what his mother told him, so to speak, not from what his brother said, but he got his identity based on God's word. God's word told him, you're the light of the world. Therefore, he could stand with confidence in front of crowds that had just ridiculed him and said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am, I am, I am. The question this evening is, do you know who you are? Not because of what your wife says or your husband says, but you do, not, do you know your identity and who you are based on God's word? The foundation. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And there we have the first temptation of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What was the first temptation of Jesus? There was three of them. What was the first one? Anybody? Turning stones into bread. Right? Turning stones into bread. Matthew chapter 4 and verse... The Bible says in verse 2, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 3, and when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones be made bread. Now I would suggest to you that the first temptation of Jesus is not to turn stones into bread. Read verse 6. The Bible says, the devil takes him up to a holy city, sets him on a pinnacle, and says unto him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourselves down, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over thee. What is the key word in verse 4 and in verse 6? If. Satan is not saying to Jesus, Jesus, you're the son of God. I remember you in heaven. I worshipped you up there. You are the son of God. Therefore, because you are the son of God, please cast yourselves down and make these stones into bread. He doesn't say that. He says, if you're the son of God, then do this. If you're the son of God, then do this. I would suggest to you that the first temptation of Jesus was not to turn stones into bread. The first temptation of Jesus was to try to get him to doubt his identity as being the Son of God. If you're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God. The stones and the casting down from the temple was, was merely, you know, kind of... The outward thing. But really at the core, Satan was trying to get Jesus to question his role in ministry and place here on earth. Turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We see a pattern building throughout the Gospels. Matthew 13 and verse 53 and 4 and so on. I'm just going to paraphrase a story here. In Matthew 13 verse 53 and 54, the Bible says that Jesus goes back to his hometown. His hometown. Which was? Nazareth. He goes back to Nazareth, hometown, his own country, the Bible says. And he goes to the synagogue. Now let's make this into modern day terminology. Jesus has been ministering. He comes back to his hometown. He comes back to his home. We don't say home synagogue. We say our home what? Our home church. So picture the scene. You go up to Avondale or you go to England or you go to America to study for the ministry. Or you go as a missionary to some faraway island in the South Pacific. And you're ministering for three years. And you come back to your home what? Church. And you stand in the pulpit. And Jesus stands up and what happens? Verse 54. Whence, where does this man have wisdom and these mighty works? Verse 55. You can almost picture it. Is not this the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judah, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then has these man all these things? You can imagine, you can picture it. This is very, you know, posh English. Jesus is standing up there speaking in the synagogue. And you can just picture one of the, you know, maybe, you know, one of the uh, more senior members in church or one of the more skeptical members sitting towards the back, scratching, saying, I'm sure we were, you know this guy? Yeah. He speaks with a similar accent to us. Have you seen him before? I'm sure I've seen him somewhere. It's on the tip of my tongue. I can't quite remember it. And ah, you can hear them whispering in the back of the church, talking back and forth. They're not reading their scrolls. They're not reading their Bibles. And then you can hear one say, this is Jesus. Stands up in the synagogue and says, just got one question for you, Jesus. We remember who you are. You're the carpenter's son. You claimed you were. Your mother's Mary. Just got one question for you, Jesus. You couldn't answer it then. Let's see if you can answer it now. Who's your daddy? Don't give me that story about the Holy Spirit. Who's your daddy? And if you can't answer that question, sit back down. You can almost picture it there. They're like, who's this man? And then the Bible says in verse 57, this is the key. And they were offended in him. Imagine you come back to your home church. You've just been a missionary in the South Pacific. And your home church, when you stand up to preach, is offended. You have the audacity to teach them. Satan doubts he's Messiah, son of God. Jesus' home church say, nah, we're not buying this one. Off you go. Off you go. Verse 58. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Turn to John 7. John 7. Do you see a pattern building up? John chapter 7 and verse 1 to 6 is where we're going to look at. John 7 verse 1 to 6, the Bible says in verse 1, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee. If you know the map of Israel, where's Galilee? It's to the north. Where's Jerusalem? It's to the south. So the Bible says Jesus was in Galilee, which is in the north, for he walking down near Jerusalem. Why? Because the Jews wanted to kill him. So because they want to kill him, he's retreated north to Galilee, around Capernaum, and he's hanging out with his disciples around the, river, the, the lake. Now the Bible says, the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. And his brothers, verse 3 said, depart from here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you do. For no one does anything in secret. So his, his, his brothers are saying, this is his own flesh and blood. They're saying to Jesus, what are you doing up here hiding in this little mountain retreat where there's only a few people living? If you really are the Messiah, go down to Jerusalem. Prove yourself. Verse 5. For neither did his what? Brothers believe him. Even his brothers are saying, Jesus, whatever, we've heard the stories, we grew up with you. You're not Messiah. If you really were, why are you up here in Galilee? Go back down there to Jerusalem. Satan, his church family, his own brothers. Turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, back to Matthew 27. And in Matthew 27, around verse 40 to 45, Matthew 27, verses 40 to 45, the Bible says, 
Verse, actually, go to back to verse 39. 39 of chapter 27, the Bible says, And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. So people, are, he's on the cross, people are walking by, reviling him. What's the, what's, I mean, what's the modern day term we'd use for reviling him? Hmm? Mocking, insulting, heckling. They're walking by, shouting all these things at Jesus. And what are they saying? Verse 40. And saying, you that destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If thou be the son of God, then do what? Come down from the cross. Verse 42. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. This is the chief priest. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. And you also know the thief on the cross said, if you're the, you know, let us get down from this cross. The first temptation of Jesus was Satan trying to get him to doubt his identity when he said, if you're the son of God, turn stones into bread. The last temptation of Jesus, Satan has these people walking by saying, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross. Throughout his ministry, his church family, his brothers are doubting who he was. And yet Jesus was secure the whole way through, able to say, I am. I am, I am the light of the world. In contrast to all of this seeming opposition against him and his identity. Why? Because Jesus knew who he was based from the word of God. He could say, no, no. You can say whatever you want to say. I know who I am. I know who I am. There's certain things we're sure about ourselves and that we know about ourselves. But some things we doubt. When it comes to our nationality, we know who we are. Most of the time. Amen? Some of you are like me, a bit mixed up. Not quite sure what you are. Well, I'm English, because I'm from England. I have a passport. But my mother's from Iceland. My dad's from Mauritius. But he's an Indian Mauritian. It's very handy, you know. You can flip what you, be what you want whenever you want to be. <laughs> Today I'll be Icelandic. That's my excuse. Today I'm Mauritian, then I'm going to be Indian, then I'll be British. But, some of you are very sure, exactly, you're like, nope, I'm an Aussie. No, you're not, you're New Zealander. No, I'm an Aussie. And you don't like it when people call you something else. I've been to America, and it seems that in America, the Americans think the Australians are English and the English are Australians. It's very annoying and frustrating. So I'll be in America like, hey, which part of Australia are you from? I'm like, you Canadians keep getting us mixed up. You know, and they really didn't used to like it when you say that to them. I'm like, hey, you can't get me right, I won't get you right either. We don't like it when people mix up who we are. Jesus, I know who I am, whether you accept it or whether... You know, there's one group who accepted who... who, There's one person in the Bible, his disciples knew who, who he was. But there was one group who... Who, one person who, who said who Jesus was. In Mark, just go a few pages over to Mark chapter 1, the next page in the Bible. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is there in the synagogue. And the Bible says in verse 23, there is a man with an unclean spirit. That's a polite way of saying he's demon possessed. And he says in verse 24, what have you to do, you Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here you have someone saying to Jesus, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, be quiet. Hold your peace. That's a polite way of saying, zip it, be quiet. 
So here you have a man saying, Jesus, I know who you are. Be one. And he says, shush, don't want to hear it. The only person, aside from his disciples, who was affirming his identity was demon-possessed and out of his mind. And I believe what Satan's trying to do to Jesus is to get him to think, if the only people who are saying who you are are out of their mind, maybe, Jesus, you've lost it as well. Maybe you are out of your mind. Now, how does this affect us? This is all very interesting to see how Jesus, yep, Jesus, yep. People are doubting his identity, and yet he is sure based on the word of God. But how about us? Turn to Acts chapter 9. This does affect us. In Acts chapter 9, you see, many of us, we live in a society that wants to question continually who we are. What is your identity today? Can we be sure of who we are as individuals? Or is it fluctuating all the time? As an Adventist, as a Christian, where is our place as a Christian in this postmodern secular society? And where is our place as an Adventist within the Christian family? And where is our place as an individual within the church? All the time is, where, you know, who am I? Where do I fit? Where am I? In Acts chapter 9, you have a story here. And it's interesting because this, well, this one affects us in different ways. How many of you would like God to come down here during prayer meeting tonight? Amen. You know, I just went up to Sunnyside yesterday. And it's pretty amazing. You're there in Sunnyside, in a house. Ellen White lived there. And yet as you're there in the house, and I've been to Elmshaven in California as well, and you know that in that house, whether it was in the bedroom or the living room, there were times when God himself would visit Ellen White. I was there, and I'm, in, I'm not sure the story in the Sunnyside, but I remember in Elmshaven, in the bedroom, you can read it in nine volumes of testimony. She says, he woke up one night, and she heard a voice. There was a bright light, and she heard a voice saying, you know, fear not, it is I. Angels are all around you. And then to go to that same room, we're like, wow, I'm in the place where God spoke to Ellen White. Imagine, Acts chapter 9. Verse 10, the Bible says there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. You can imagine it, surround sound, both speakers, Ananias. And he said, here am I. Next verse. And the Lord said to him, arise. You can just hear him saying, all right, yep, I'll arise, no problem. And go into the street, which is called Straight. Bit of a funny name for a street. But he says, yep, I'll arise. I know where Straight Street is. I'll go there. And then he says, answer, where is it? And inquire at the house of Judas. And you can just picture it. And I ask, yep, Judas, I know him. He was, he's a deacon in our church. I can go there. And inquire for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prays and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him that he might receive sight. So here... Lord, yes. Arise. Yes. Go to the street called Straight. Yes. Go to the house of, what is his name? Judas. Yes, I know him. And inquire for a man named Saul. How does he respond? Yes, Lord, here am I, send me. Verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man. 
how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem and he has authority to bind the chief priests and all that call on your name here you have the Lord giving him instruction about what to do and he says Lord I know you're busy but let me let you in on a secret from many other people what this man does how many people do we run down in church based on what we hear how many of us believe who we are based on what other people tell us about ourselves Lord I've heard this man does this notice how the Lord responds I'm so glad the Lord just doesn't slap Ananias over the head which he should do how does he respond the Lord said unto him, go your way. For, what's the next two words? He will be. For he is a chosen vessel to me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the people and the children of Israel. The Lord says, listen, whatever you heard, I don't care what you've heard. Go your way. He is a chosen vessel to me. And he is going to do many many great things the lord knows our identity the lord knows where our mission is going to take us in life and if anyone we listen to it's the voice of god and what he says about us one reason why we don't know who we are is because we often listen to what other people want to tell us about ourselves You know, we have to fill out those review sheets at work or at school. How do you think you did? How many of you like filling those in? I hate them. can't stand them. It's like an English thing. I don't want to do that. I don't want to analyze myself. Get someone else to do it for me. Listen to what they have to say about me. Sometimes we take that spiritually. It comes into church. We're asked to serve. Can you say a prayer up front? Oh. What's so-and-so going to think about my prayer? Oh, I don't want to pray. People are judging my prayer. Can you do this? Can you do that? No, no, no. Always worried what others are going to think or say. Sometimes after we've done something, it's nice to hear words of affirmation. That's nice. Sometimes they don't come. And sometimes we shouldn't always be looking for them. Lord, I prayed to you help me. I asked you to be with me. Lord, thank you. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. In Jeremiah chapter 1, you may have read this passage of scripture before. Jeremiah chapter 1. He was a young man when the Lord called him. In Jeremiah chapter 1. In Jeremiah 1 and verse... For the Bible says the word of the Lord came unto me saying, verse 5, Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you, which means set you aside. And I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So here the Lord comes to him saying, Before you were even born, I set you aside to be a prophet to the nations. And how does Jeremiah answer God? Ah, Lord, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Here God has told him who he is, and now he responds to say, I can't do that, I'm a child. He was 15 years old. 
How many times in your prayer life, in your devotional life, has the Lord maybe told you to do something? You're praying, asking the Lord to bless you. Maybe it's to talk to a co-worker. Maybe it's to share with someone at school. Maybe it's to do something in church or something. And you're asking the Lord. And when the Lord says, I want you to do this, we respond with a whole list of reasons why we can't do it, which normally begin with I. And we're telling God who we are when he's trying to tell us and declare to us, do this, I will empower you. No, Lord. Don't you know who I am? Let me let you in on a secret. Maybe you don't know. This is how I really am. But no, 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 no. I'll speak for you. Don't you know, Lord? I can't speak. But I'll do. You know what I'm talking about. This constant going back and forth, arguing with God when he's trying to tell us something, or ask us or empower us, and yet we want to argue with him. Doubting what God is saying about us. The Lord said to him, verse, where is it? Seven. The Lord said, say not, I am a child, for you shall go to all that I speak. You see, when we have not accepted what God has said about us, we do not accept. We don't accept what God has said about us. It makes it very hard for us to accept anything God may ask us to do. Imagine if you were to be sent as a missionary. Anyone heard of Adventist Frontier Missions? Do you get the magazine here in Australia? Maybe. Adventist Frontier Missions is describing missionaries that go to frontier places. There's no Christians. There's no Adventists. They have to learn the language. There's no structured churches there. There's no schools. There's nothing. And you send them to a country, say, for like Turkey. And there they have to work as undercover missionaries, talking to folks and building up bridges and so on. Imagine if you signed up to be an Adventist frontier missionary and said, I have a burden to go to Saudi Arabia, to be a closed door behind the curtain missionary. You sign up, you fundraise, you travel around Australia, you get the money you need to go and sponsorships and everything. And then just before you're about to go as a missionary, you get involved in a car accident. Right here in Sydney. Terrible car accident. Bang. The next thing you know, you wake up. Or you're lying on a hospital bed. Someone comes from the division office to come see you, and they, they come to your bed, and they say, Adam? Myself. And I look around. Huh? Adam? Adam Ramden? Look behind me. See the name? Yeah? Guess that's me. My name is so-and-so, and I come from South Pacific Division. I come from Adventist Frontier Missions. I'm like, Adventist Frontier Missions? Who's that? Oh, it's a missionary part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Seventh-day Adventist Church? What's that? It would be foolish, well-nigh stupid, to send me as a missionary to Saudi Arabia. I don't know my name. I don't know what the Adventist Church is. And I don't know what AFN is. I've lost my identity. Before sometimes we can go and share right there. We need to be sure of who we are. 
Not based on the sign outside the building, but based on God's word. That as our identity is rooted in the word, we can stand before a co-worker or someone. We can even stand there and listen to someone laugh at us, not take it personally. Why? Because we know what God's word says about us, about me. You know, I've been around Europe and I visited a few concentration camps. I was just speaking about it with Lyle the other day, actually, because he had gone to one in Germany. And they're horrific places to go. Maybe you've seen some of the footage of when they um, went to the concentration camps, the English and the Americans and the Russians and, they, and the Australians, and liberated them. Some of the people in the concentration camps were there for months, some of them years. And they were very malnourished when they were liberated. But sometimes what they would do for punishment in these concentration camps, you read the stories, it's terrible what they would do. Here are people that are educated, lawyers or architects and so on. And because, say, one person tried to escape, they would punish all the 150 or so of the people in the barracks. And they'll say, on that side of the camp, you need to dig a ditch and carry the mud to that side of the concentration camp today, all day, carrying the mud. The next day, get the mud, carry it back, fill in the hole. The next day, dig it out again, carry it to that side, drop it off. The next day they wake up, what do we do today? Pick up the mud, take it back to the hole. The next day wake up, what's our job today? Pick up the mud, take it to that side. Day after day after day after day after day, mud, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Until eventually some of these people, that was their punishment. They would literally lose their minds and run and jump on the wire fences and some would commit suicide. Because they would rather die than live a meaningless existence. Sometimes, some of us would rather die spiritually or symbolically we would rather die than maybe share with someone about what we believe we would maybe rather die than offer to give a bible study rather die than do something for the lord who has given us so many things how do we get where, where do we get our identity from how do we get these things turn to psalms 139 psalms 139 in Psalms 139, uh, not Paul, David is here writing Psalms 139, and it's a beautiful psalm. He starts there in verse 1, and I'm going to read through the psalm. It says, O Lord, you searched me, and you know me. O Lord, you know my downsitting and my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. Verse 3, you compasses my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but Lord, you know it altogether. You have beset me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Whither shall I go from your spirit or whither shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me and your right hand shall 
hold me? If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, even the night shall be light around me. Yea, the darkness hides not from thee, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the lightness are both alike to thee. For you have formed, sorry, thou hast possessed my reins, you covered me in my mother's womb. Verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that your souls knows right well. Verse 15, my substance was not hid from you when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect. And in your book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Verse 16, what's he saying? He's saying, you wrote my members, my body, my bones, who I am, in a book. When as yet there was none of them. God knew us before we were even born. God knew us before we even came into existence. And he wrote us down. Adam, Ramdin, my child, set him apart. Wrote us down before we were even born, before we were formed. He knew us. God knew us. I'm not a parent. Never had the privilege yet. Some of you are parents here. I've heard though that before a child is born, there's some studies or some people that say that you can, you can even start communicating with the, the child in the stomach even before it's born. Whether it's talking to, singing to, I had a friend that told me the story. He said that before his baby was born, he used to sing to his child in the womb. And he would sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Every night he would sing the song to the belly. He said when the baby was born, baby's born, comes out, covered in, well, you know, Beautiful, the mother always says. They cut the cord. And the baby's crying. Screaming. Nurse had him. Crying, screaming. And my friend, the dad, said, give me the child. He took the child and the child's still screaming in his arms. As the child screaming, he started to sing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And as he started to sing the first line of the song, you know what happened? Little baby opened his eyes, looked up, stopped crying, and was fixed. It's almost like he said, that's the voice. I know that voice. I've heard it before. That's the voice of my father. You see, before we were born, God knew us. He set us apart. He knows us. 
You know there's a psychological theory called the looking glass self. Have you heard of it? You ever seen that picture of a, a, a little cat looking into the mirror? And in the mirror, there's a big lion. You seen that picture? Little cat, massive lion in the mirror. It's like, he thinks he's a lion. But he's just a little cat. It's a funny, it's a funny picture. There's a psychological theory called the looking glass self, and it's, it goes something like this, and I believe it's somewhat true. In that, we view ourselves the same way that the most important people in our life view us. Which is often true. Not all the, all the time, but it's often true. In that we often think of ourselves as our parents thought of us. You know the stories of a parent, a child who's you know, encouraged, he's affirmed, he's praised. They will often go on and do something with their life. And on the other hand, you have a child who's constantly put down by his mother and his father. You're no good, you're useless, you're... Da, 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 da. And that child will struggle with that as they get older into teenage years and into adulthood and so on. Because the most important people in their life have constantly put them down or on the reverse have constantly lifted them up, maybe. Maybe you have godly parents, maybe you've been blessed in life, but maybe you haven't. And sometimes the way we look at the world is the way we look at ourselves is a reflection of what other people have said about us constantly, whether it was our Sabbath school teacher or our pastor, or whether it was our youth leader, you know, ostracizing us as we were a young person growing up in church, or whatever it may have been, and yet we look at and see ourselves as that is. And that is why the Bible says, I believe, to us. All of these people are important, but none are as important as God himself. That's why the Bible says in John 3, and it brings great meaning to the verse, when it says, you must be born again. You've been born once into the human family and your parents may have said this or they may have said that about you, however good or bad they were. But you need to be born again into the family of God so that the voice you're hearing is the voice of God. The words you're hearing is what God is saying about us, constantly lifting and affirming and saying, you're my child. I have set you aside. I knew your members in the earth before you were even born. I know who you are and I have great things for you. Your identity is found in me. How many of you like old cars? You have a pastor here that likes old cars. And his wife likes old cars too. Some of you may like new cars. But if you're a person who likes a classic, or you own a classic, you may treat that thing like a baby. And maybe, just maybe the time comes, let's just say you had a nice car. Once I had the privilege to drive, I stayed, I was in America, the pastor, he was borrowing from the mechanic who was his church member, or some, I can't remember the story. But anyway, I got the chance to ride a 1956 or 7 Chevrolet convertible. Oh, it was beautiful. Fully restored. And there I am, I was only 19 years old at the time, just cruising around driving this car with him in it as well. I'm cruising around driving this 1956 Chevy convertible, red, white leather. It was in mint condition. And he's going to sell that car. And he's going to get, as we say in England, a pretty penny for it. It's not going to be a $5,000 car or 10 or 20. It's probably going to go for 30 or $40,000. 
Now, nine out of ten people would walk by that car in the driveway and say, $40,000 for an old car? No. I can spend $40,000 on a brand new BMW. I'm going to go for that. But maybe one in ten people will walk by and they'll say, $40,000 for a 1956 car. Yep, I'll take that. I'll buy that one. I know how much that car is worth. I know its value. I know how far it goes back. I'll take that car. You see, the price of the car or the value of the car is not set by the person who sells it. It's set by the person who buys it. Because you say, yep, that's worth it. I'll buy that. The value is set by the one who buys it. You see, when God formed man, he made us in the dust on the ground. And he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. But it wasn't at creation where our value was set. It was at redemption that our value was made. Because it was when Jesus died on the cross that symbolically he flipped the price tag over. And he said, man is worth this much. This much. Man is worth this much. In redemption, our value was realized. For one of us. We're told if it was but for one, Christ would have died. The parable of the lost sheep, because of one lost sheep, the shepherd went out to find the sheep. If it was, it's not like Jesus was waiting for, oh, there's 5,000 wicked people, I'll go and die for them. You know, I've heard the preachers, I've heard preachers sometimes say that, you know, uh, Eve sinned and, uh, and um, you know, God could have made Adam another wife. Maybe he could have. He's God. You know what I believe would have happened? Jesus would have come down and died for Eve. Why? Or Adam. Whichever way you want to flip it. He would have come down and died for just one. The whole plan of redemption would have been put into place just for one. Just for one. If that is the case then the value of you, the value of me, becomes all of a sudden a whole lot bigger. If Jesus would have died just for you, then that means you, in the eyes of heaven, are as precious as Jesus. I'll die for one. The life of one son for one human. I'll die for that. As precious as Christ. When you look in the mirror in the morning, what do you see? What do you see? 21-year-old, 26-year-old, messed up hair. What do you see in the morning? What do you see, what do you think of when you hear your name spoken by someone else? What do you think of? Do you think of someone as precious as Jesus Christ himself? That's the value heaven places upon us. That in redemption, our value was made. You see, our identity. Jesus constantly was, had this temptation to doubt his identity from his brothers, from his church family, from Satan himself, and from the people walking by as he was on the cross, walking down the road. You and I go through the same temptation Jesus had, whether it's from our own very close family, whether it's from our church family sometimes, that happens. 
whether it's from Satan, that definitely happens. And sometimes it's from ram, random strangers where we constantly are, 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 are challenged to question who we are as a child of God in the year 2012 today. And the Bible saying, I want you to get your identity, not in the car you drive out there, as nice or bad as it may be, not in the clothes that you wear or the posh ones you have at home that you didn't wear today, not in those things, not in the church you're a part of. And wow, I'm a part of this church. No, but I want you to get your identity based in the word of God, in Jesus Christ. And that is where he says, I want you to find your assurity in the value I place on you. That you are as precious as Christ. And to get your value and our identity based on God's word. That who we are as an Adventist is based on God's word. Who we are as a Christian is based on God's word. And who we are as an individual in this world we find based on the word of God and what God declares about us. For he said about Saul, he is a mighty vessel. The Lord looks down on us today, not as we are, but he says he is this. He, she is this. They're a chosen vessel to me to take my gospel to the Gentiles. How many of you this evening want to say, I want to get my identity tonight on the word of God? That's your desire. Let me see you. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we close for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word that declares. We thank you, Lord, that in your word there is creative power. And that when you say something, it becomes. We thank you, Lord, that by your word, the heavens were made. By your word, the earth was made. And your word is powerful enough to transform and change us. Lord, may we believe by faith what you say about us. That our identity, our mission, and our purpose in this life as young people, as youth, as older people, may be found in your word and your word only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio.
Welcome to the Minute That Makes a Difference. I'm Margot Marshall. What difference would it make if you made a habit of being grateful? Gratitude actually has measurable health benefits. For example, adults who keep gratitude journals on a regular basis exercise more regularly, they report fewer illness symptoms, feel better about their lives as a whole and are more optimistic about the future. Gratitude is actually a science, and it's also ancient wisdom, having way over a hundred mentions in the Bible. And there's a lot to be thankful for. Albert Einstein admitted that he needed to remind himself a hundred times a day that his inner and outer life depended on the labours of other people, living and dead. So cultivate gratitude. It makes a difference. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.